Today we launch a new sermon series called Stages, the Soul of Every Season. As we gather together to worship here, we are all in different stages and seasons of life. Each stage is unique in itself. Each stage offers blessings, but also at times burdens. There's two constants in life, right? There's seasons and there's God. And God has designed the seasons that are changing in our world all the time. To be grounded in, in God is to be secure when changes occur. Let me say that again. To be grounded in God is to be secure when changes occur. To seek God's will in whatever place you find yourself today. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read together God's word. I want to ask you to read this with me. It's a familiar passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's read this together. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father God, I pray that you would speak to us throughout this morning, throughout this message, throughout these words of scripture. Lord God, that you would guide us through the seasons of life. And thank you, Father God, no matter what season we find ourselves in today, that you are faithful to be with us. So Lord, help us to be discerning where you are as we walk through the place we are. And may again, you move here in a mighty way across this campus. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, as you think about the seasons of life, it's important to note that these seasons are not sequential, that they can happen at different times and, and uh, we don't automatically move into one and never return to another. And there are times we may be in two seasons at the same time. And this morning as I talked to people, they, they expressed how they were now in a new season of life. And they were so thankful to be out of the old season they just came through. But there's no guarantee we won't go back through that season. Seasons require discernment to see what God has invited us to learn, what God has wanted to show us and teach us. And I would say that seasons are no respecter of persons. All of us are going to go through the seasons of life. If we live long enough on this planet, we're going to experience these various seasons. Now, one thing I would say to you, that God is the God of the present. God is always in the moment. Be that moment hard or easy, or joyful, or painful. God is with us. Now, I'm going to encourage you whenever you listen to this message and not get up right now and go over, but Chad is preaching a great sermon on this passage. 
I've listened to it, parts of it. It's very, very good. And uh, I'm going to go a little different direction, but I wanted to begin this uh, sermon series talking about the seasons of life and reading from Ecclesiastes. So if you get a chance this week, go online, listen to Chad's message. I also want to let you know, if you haven't heard this, that Chad and his family are moving back to Lexington. And so we celebrate that. And, uh, and I said in the earlier service, he's moving back to South Carolina. He's actually moving back to Lexington, South Carolina, and will be with us continuing on our team. And we're, we're grateful and thankful for that. Now, the, where I want to spend some time with you this morning is where the seasons of life intersect with the stages of grace, where the, inter, the seasons of our life intersect with God's stages of grace. And what are the stages of grace? I found this great story from a Methodist pastor, Scott Hoskema. He said, imagine you're watching the Boston Marathon. It's a beautiful April day, perfect weather for the race. 30,000 people of all ages and nationalities, stages of life. They, they, they've gathered at the starting line. They all have their racing gear, their racing shoes, their racing numbers. They've all stretched. They've all loosened up. The appointed time comes and the starter fires the gun and nothing much happens. A few people seem to take the race seriously and they, 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 they sprint out of sight. Others make it to about the end of the block and then they stop and start taking selfies, right? That they're running in the Boston Marathon. But most just stand around. Now, as you think about that analogy, as God looks down upon us, God looks down upon his world. It must be what we look like because God has laid out a course. God has laid out a race. God has laid out the way of salvation, and he's prepared each and every person who has ever lived, each and every person who's alive today, every person that will ever live, and in every season of life, God has made a way, and the starting gun has sounded, but many are not paying any attention. They are aimlessly going about life, ignoring the reality that God has a plan and that God has a place for you and a race for you to run. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about the stages of grace that intersect with the seasons of life that God has put in place for the world. Philippians 1.6 says, and I'm sure that God who began the good work within you will keep right on helping you grow in his grace until his task within you is finally finished on that day when Jesus Christ returns. There is an expectation if you have said yes to God that you are to grow in grace, that I am to be growing in grace. We just don't go to the starting line and make it to the first block and start taking selfies. I was at Mount Horb today. I showed up, but that's about it. The scripture says that we are to grow in grace until he is finally finished in you. So I want to talk about the West, John Wesley, the founder of the Wesleyan movement, eventually launched the Methodist church on, on his idea of the stages of grace. And, and, and Wesley uses a metaphor of a house. So a little doctrine theology for you today. Today, we need to get a little more grounded 
in what we believe as Wesleyans. And, and, and for Wesley, it's how we move into salvation, how we experience saving grace. So I'm going to give you four stages. Uh, the first is what he called prevenient grace, and it is the, the address to the house. And then I'm going to talk about convicting grace, which is the porch of the house. And then justifying grace for Wesley was the door of the house. And then sanctifying grace was living in the house, how you live in the house. So I owe a lot of this uh, to my original learnings at Asbury Seminary. I went back and listened to Dr. Charles Goodson, who's a professor at Asbury, and revisited some of my theological grounding and the very helpful stuff. Let's talk about prevenient grace. It's a, it's a unique word to Methodist. It's something that uh, Wesley was known for, prevenient grace, preventing grace. And what I, I'm taking some liberties with Wesley here. I like to call that when you learn that they're the, the address to God's house, you, you learn the, the index to God's plan, that God does have a plan for my life. And there's an invitation that God has given to me. Prevenient grace is, 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 is the work that God is doing in your life before you knew that God was working in your life. It is the grace that goes before you give your life to Christ. It's prevenient grace. It's when you become aware that God has a place for me. It's, it's, it's the grace that, that peels back the layers of darkness that has blinded you to the reality that there is a God. And, and, and God has given enough grace in every human being that has ever lived, every human being that will ever live has been touched by the grace of God. You know, when we see someone do an act of kindness, show an act of compassion, show an expression of love, whether they're a Christian or not, is an expression of the prevenient grace of God. You know, what's scary is I read, read through the book of Revelation as I kind of study some of how the world is going to end and whether you believe in a, 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 the second coming of Christ is going to be pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. But one of the promises in Revelation is at the end of time, before the world comes to an end, is God's spirit will be removed from the earth. God's grace will not be visible on the earth. Now, you're talking about a terrifying place a terrifying place to be here on the earth without the presence of God's grace, without the presence of the Spirit of God. And so prevenient grace is available and working, not available, it is working in every single person that's ever been born. When I think of prevenient grace, I think about the prodigal son, the story where the son took his inheritance and left his father's house and went to the big city and there he wasted and squandered all of his father's inheritance. And he and he's actually ends up losing everything. And he's in the pig pen of life. And, and the scripture says, Jesus in telling the story says, and, and he came to his senses. He came to his senses. And he realized that there was something better in his father's house. See, I believe prevenient grace helps us come to our senses where we begin to realize that there's something better than this mess that I'm living into. Now, for Wesley, then, it moves from prevenient grace to convicting grace. Convicting grace, convincing grace, the front porch of the house. You, you found the address to where God wants you to be. 
you begin the journey and you end up on the front porch. The front porch of convicting grace is where we become convinced of our brokenness and our need for God. It's when we become uncomfortable with our brokenness and we want to begin to make a change. We realize how self-centered we are. We realize how selfish we are and that, and that really sin is about the essence of being selfish. It's about doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, despite anyone else. Self-interest. So convicting grace calls us to repentance, to, to change our behavior. Now, for me, convicting grace happened whenever my neighbor across the street, Gene Edwards, picked me up and says, I want to take you to church. And she took me to church, and, and, and there I heard her son, Jack Edwards, preach a revival sermon. As he preached, I began to feel this conviction, sensation in my inner being. I didn't know what was going on. I was 14. But I knew there was something missing in my life. God had made me aware of that. And as my heart began to beat louder and louder, and I could feel like it was going to pop out of my chest, and I'd run track, I'd run the mile, I'd run the half mile. I knew what that felt like. This was different. God was knocking on the door of my heart. The, the, my favorite stained glass window there is the, one, the first one on the right where Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any person hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into their life, come into their house, and I will... Uh, fellowship with them. God was knocking on the door of my heart. Many of you in this room or listening online have felt that. Others of you, it is my prayer, will feel it today, that God was knocking on the door of your heart. He has convinced you to show up through the power of the Holy Spirit, provenient grace, and he's convincing you, convicting you that there's something in my life that needs to change and needs to be transformed. So then Wesley, number three, was the door of the house. Again, as Revelation 3.20 depicted. And for Wesley, that was justifying grace. It's when you walk through the door, when you open the door, you experience the justifying grace of God that we can never purchase or we can never earn. Now, if we follow the, the, the scope of the Bible, we know that in the beginning, in Genesis, there was the fall. You know, humankind rebelled against God. And from Genesis all the way through to the birth of Jesus to the cross, humankind was under an incredible burden of sin, a, a debt that they could not repay. Now, God could certainly repay the debt, but God didn't incur the debt. And so what did God do? God sent his only son. We just spent Easter celebrating the fact that God sent his only son into the world to go to the cross and die for every sin that's ever been committed, every sin that will ever be committed, Jesus Christ died on the cross. His last words was, it is finished. The redemptive work, the justifying grace has been done. It is finished. And the good news is we celebrate on Easter when he resurrected, he finally put the nail in, into death. He, he defeated death. 
And so justifying grace is when we realize that Jesus Christ has done for me and we accept what Jesus Christ has done for me so we might receive the gift of God. God's only son became fully human to take upon the sins of all people for all time on the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 says it this way, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Justifying grace is believing what Christ has done for me is effective, makes it effective. And you don't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Somebody say, amen. We can't boast about what we've done to earn salvation. Justifying grace is the work that Jesus Christ has done. It, justifying grace removes the penalty of past sins and sets us free with the power to be victorious over sin. Two peas in a pod, someone said, peace and power. When you walk through the door into God's house, you, you, you invite Jesus Christ into your life, peace and power. And not just peace and power, but happiness and holiness. You're invited into the holiness of God, which is justifying grace, the gift of God that none of us deserve, which leads us into the house, sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace for Wesley was how do you live in the house? You, 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 you found the house. You found God's plan. The Holy Spirit's led you to God's plan. You have been convicted of your sins. You have, you have walked to the door. You've opened the door, accepted the justifying grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. How do you live in the house? How do you occupy the house? I love 2 Peter 3. It says, grow in the loving favor that Christ gives you. Learn to know our Lord Jesus Christ better. That's the ticket. Learn to know our Lord Jesus Christ better. He is the one who saves. May he have all the shining greatness now and forever. Sanctifying grace is learning to know Christ better. Sanctification means that we are set apart for the glory of God. Friday morning in our men's prayer time, I, I read the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples when it comes to sanctifying. He says in verse 15 of chapter 17, I do not pray he's, pray, he's praying for the disciples and all future followers who would come to follow him, including you and me. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the, of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So how do we experience sanctifying grace? Certainly, it is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But sanctifying grace comes from the word of God. By, by reading and immersing myself in the word of God is where sanctifying grace comes from. You can't invent it. You can't think of it. I'm going, to try to be, I'm going to try to be better. No, it's when I read the word of God that it pierces my soul sharper than any two-edged sword that begins to transform me from the inside out. And that's why, my friends, you need to be in the word of God. You need to be reading the word of God. I was reading uh, last week and then catching up on some of my Old Testament reading, and I was reading in 2 Kings chapter 6. And I, and I sent this verse to a bunch of people this past week who are going through some difficult times and uh, challenges uh, in, in ministry and challenges in life. And, and, and in 2 Kings chapter 6, it's where, where Elisha prays that everyone would see this, 
the, the reality of God's presence. And then whenever the young man looks up to the hills, he sees countless numbers of soldiers and chariots and warriors surrounded by a host of God's angels and fighters. And that was my prayer. And that, and that convicted me, convinced me, reminded me that God is with me, that his sanctifying grace is that powerful, that even today when I'm preaching, when Chad's preaching, and all across the world, whenever God's word is being lifted up, there is the presence of God's power to transform lives. I can't change anyone's life, but God's grace can. Amen? God's grace can. For Wesley, sanctification, he called Christian perfection. And that's a scary word for us as Christians. What do you mean? I'm supposed to be perfect? No, for Wesley, it was imperfect perfection. That we, as long as we live on the planet, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to uh, make errors. But we are to strive for perfection in how we live out our faith. By living in sanctifying grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the presence of God's Word in our life. This is one of my lover's quarrels with Methodists. You know, we Methodists celebrate the grace of God. We talk a lot about the grace of God. But then we use, then we cheapen the grace of God when we say, well, you know, I can do whatever I want to do because God will forgive me. And, you know, I'm just a sinner. And all of us have said that, Right? I'm just a sinner. So therefore, these things that I, these bad habits that I have, I can't let go of. That's just, you know, I'm just a sinner. And one day I'll get, I'll get over that. Well, I want you to know that I believe the Bible teaches that we are to not just settle for being sinners. That we are to strive to be saints. And we are, we are to allow the sanctifying presence of God's Spirit to transform us. And becoming the men and the women that God wants us to be so that others who don't know him will see him in our lives. And if we continue to live like everybody else and talk like everybody else and partake in things like everybody else, how is anybody going to see the sanctifying goodness and the grace of God unless we allow the goodness and the glory of God to shine through our lives? So for Wesley, when it came to sanctifying grace... He would, he would believe that, that we no longer leave here and intentionally sin. That I know clearly by what the Word of God says what is sin. So therefore, I'm not going to intentionally sin today. Now, if you leave here going, you know, I know that he said I shouldn't do that, but, you know, it just tastes good. It feels good. It just makes me look good. That's potentially, whatever that is, could be, intentionally being disobedient to God. For Wesley, if you're going to move into sanctifying grace, it's intentionally no longer sinning. It's intentionally choosing not to harm someone, to speak badly to someone or speak badly about someone. It's we're deciding to intentionally not do things that displease God. And we, and we strive to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what sanctifying grace means. And that's why the church has lost its power. The church has lost its power because we settle for much less than that. And, and, and the rest of the world looks at the church and goes, well, I'm just as good as they are. I, I, you know, I don't see anything different about these people who call themselves Christians. 
We are to be sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart for the glory of God. And, and it's possible with the, we can't do it on our own strength. It is with the help of God. Now, I want to say that sanctifying grace is about opportunity and time. Opportunity and time. If you're listening to my voice today, you've been given today so far. Up until this point, you've been given the opportunity of today. And for most of you in this room, listening online, will have a full day today. Can't guarantee tomorrow. I can't guarantee this afternoon, but there's a good chance that you will have opportunity today. You will have some time left to allow God to use you to influence the world, to make the world a better place. Now, that's a fruit of sanctifying grace. We, we shared on Easter Sunday, Trevor in here, uh, Chad mentioned this at sunrise, I shared it in the auditorium, that about the conversion of the thief on the cross and how the thief on the cross in a last-minute, last-ditch effort gave his life to Christ. And he, and he pleaded with Christ, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and, and the illustration we used was talking about how, what, what kind of conversation did the thief on the cross have when he got to heaven? And then the Q&A time, you know, there's going to be a little Q&A time when you get there, right? You know, well, well, well what did you do to get here? Uh, nothing. Well, what do you know about faith? Nothing. Well, did you take communion? Were you baptized? No, none of that. Well, how did you get here? And the thief on the cross perhaps would have said, only thing I know is the man on the middle cross said I could come. And why is that? Because the thief on the cross had no more opportunity. He had no more time because in that moment he was going to die. If you're listening to me today, God has given you some more opportunity. Say, thank you, Lord. Now, you act like you mean it, right? Thank you, Lord. You give me opportunity. And thank you, Lord, you give me some more time. Now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to honor yourself? Are you going to lift yourself up? Or are you going to give God glory? And sanctifying grace means that I'm going to live my life in such a way to bring glory and honor to God, that he can send me out to change the world. Let me say a word about seasons of growth because sanctifying grace means that we keep growing. I love these words in 1 Peter 1. For you have been born again. That's good news, right? For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, here's what sanctifying grace looks like. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Can we say unkind speech? That's convicting, unkind speech. And then he goes on to say, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Not a little bit of salvation, not just getting in the door, but full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. It is my prayer that this morning we will cry out for that kind of nourishment. Jesus said, I've come to give you life 
and life in abundance. See, seasons of growth means we make space for God to work. And a lot of times we can't, God can't work in our lives to bring us into the, who he wants us to be because there was no space. We have no time for God. We, we, we're busy. Our phones keep going off. We have too many hobbies, too many responsibilities. If we're going to experience sanctifying grace and have seasons of real growth in our life, we got to make space for God. I love this illustration the Lord laid on my heart is that 28 years ago, that was the size of our hallway. That's between the chapel and the fellowship hall. Now, we had over 4,000 people here on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning. Can you imagine us trying to navigate that hallway with 4,000 people? It just wouldn't work, right? But, but, but God's people at Mount Horeb in those years had enough faith to believe this hallway needed to get bigger. And that's right out these doors right here. And the hallway got bigger, and God began to bring more people into the hallway. And God began to do even greater things than he had done before. And it blew all of us away. It's amazing. You know, I remember when we built the, this room here. We built the balcony up there. We weren't going to do a balcony, but we thought we might better do that. But if you notice, this is, this is, this is kind of embarrassing. Um, we didn't put uh, pews in the balcony because we didn't think we'd ever need it for a while. And so we put folding chairs in the balcony. Now, if anybody gets convicted by this, just write a check. Um, uh, <laughs> Those are the original folding chairs that we put in the balcony the first Sunday that we opened because we didn't think we'd ever need them. Well, we were wrong, right? And we ought to really break down and buy some chairs for the balcony. It's amazing. Those, those have been up there since 2000, those same folding chairs. But, you know, the Lord wasn't done with Mount Horeb and isn't done with Mount Horeb. So guess what happened? The hallway got a lot bigger. And now you can actually help 4,000 people navigate. See, if Mount Horeb had not been willing to say, God, we want to make space for you to work, we want to make room for your Holy Spirit to move in powerful ways, it would have never happened. And I remind our people, we, those 43 new people that joined the church last, Friday, uh, last Sunday afternoon and others that will come, always be willing to be open to making spaces for what God is about to do. Because we're not going to live in the past you know, we're going to thank God for the past. We're going to celebrate the past, but we're going to look at what God's going to do next, right? And what, where's God taking Mount Horeb? But if we're not willing to make spaces for God to move, God's going to say, well, okay, I guess, you know, we're not going to grow past that point. You know, I, you know, I never forget what Dr. Eddie Fox said to us years ago. And uh, Richard, you remember this quote. Uh, he's another, he was a big Lady Vols fan, so he and Richard hit it off. But somebody asked Dr. Eddie Fox, who's now gone to be with the Lord. He was the president of World Methodist Evangelism. And then somebody asked him, Dr. Fox, when is a church too big? Is, is our church big enough? And in his wisdom, Dr. Eddie Fox said, as long as there's one unchurched person within driving distance of your church, your church is not too big. Well, guess what, folks? There's a lot of unchurched people within driving distance of Mount Horeb. And plenty of other churches. So the illustration of that is if you do not make space in your life, you will not experience the sanctifying grace of God. Just tell you real quickly some ways you can do that. You've chosen to do that today called Sabbath. 
showing up in God's house, being in God's house, being in the presence of God's people. God has honored you here, but he's also working in you today. He's got an appointment for you. Second is make some time for silence. You know, we just finished a great sermon series called Wisdom in the Wilderness, where Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and he fasted and he prayed. We spent our time in the sermon series talking about the three temptations that Jesus experienced in the wilderness. So three temptations in the wilderness, that means 37 days he was silent. Three days he had an encounter with the devil that he quoted scripture to the devil and was victorious. But for 37 days he was fasting and praying in the presence of God. Again, if you want to make space for God in your life, you've got you to spend time with God. You've got to have some time for solitude, time for silence, uh, to make room for God in your life. And then you got to seek. you got to be seeking. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness and all that will be added to you. Uh, the verse out of 1 Peter, like newborn babies, you must crave, crave hunger for pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into the full experience of salvation. How do you have growth? Is you got to seek. And then you got to serve. You know, what's made Mount Horeb unique is people serving. I love watching people serve for the first time into a new ministry. And all of us have got to serve, folks. I want you to hear that. If you are a member of Mount Horeb, when you, when you answered the membership vows, you committed to serving in some place in the church. Now, it, it, you can also serve outside the church. And again, I, my, my day job is the church, and what I do here is, is what I'm, called to do, but also I got to look for other ways to serve. So even though my wife was not very happy, um, kind of, I made a commitment to serve on the board of directors for Pathways to Healing. Didn't know a lot about it. Somebody asked me to serve and Pathway for Healings is a, it's not a faith-based effort. They've asked me to be on on the board. So it become more faith-based, but it's about helping rape victims and how to come alongside people that have been experienced sexual violence. It's also as an effort of going into all the public schools all across South Carolina to help educate children on what to look for when it comes to sexual assault. How to be prepared for that. It's a, it's a horrible thing, right? It's, it's, not, it's not something that's glamorous, but it's something that's important. And so making space to serve the Lord. Now, Seasons of growth are often met by seasons of struggle. And I believe that more than ever in the church, more than ever in my lifetime, we are in a season of struggle. I'm going to just read you two scriptures that will speak for themselves. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith and they will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. We're in the middle of of a giant spiritual battle in the church. When I say the church, I mean the big C church. When I say church, I mean the United Methodist Church. When I say church, I mean people that are leaving the faith. They're deconstructing their faith, a season of struggle. And then this, these words from 2 Timothy 4, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. A season of struggle is upon us because we are listening to whatever people want to tell us. 
You know, I've shared this before, but when I was at that revival at 14 years old, we had a Bible in our house. We never read it. Uh, it was like one of these Bibles, and it was sitting on the coffee table. Uh, and I know that when I did my dusting, my chores, I had to dust the Bible, and we couldn't put anything on top of it, even though we never read it. I knew it was important. So the young evangelist, Jack Edwards, in a Baptist church, got up and started preaching. He said, you know, I read something this week that I didn't like. It really bothered me. And then he did this. He took that page of the Bible and tore it out of the Bible and threw it on the floor. I didn't know a lot, but I knew you weren't supposed to do that. Uh, and, I, and I was trying to dodge the lightning bolt that was coming from above, right? And this was when I was 14 years old. Then he went to, you know, a little bit. He says, you know, then I found something else over here. I didn't like it. It, 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 you know, it kind of mean I had to change my life and I didn't like it. So I tore it out of the Bible. And he proceeded to tear like 10 pages out of the Bible. And I was like scared to death. And I thought hellfire and damnation was coming down upon the church. As I look back on what Jack Ebers did when I was 14 years old, he was being a prophet. Because that's exactly what's going on in our world today. When it comes to the word of God, people are selectively choosing what they want to believe and tearing out what they don't want to believe. It's leading to a, a tremendous struggle. But my friends, I would tell you this as we close this morning, that there's a stage for renewal. And my prayer is for renewal. Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name put away their pride, I know better than you, God, and begin to pray and look for my face and turn from their sinful ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's what we need in the struggle that we're in. And then we don't do it alone, folks. Know this. The evil one wants to put you in isolation to pick you off. Hebrews 10, let us help each other to love others and do good. Let us not stay away from church meetings. Some people are doing this all the time. Not you, because you're here and you're listening online. I want to close with something I never thought I would do. Some of you from the 60s and the 70s will know this. I'm dating myself here. The words, I listened to it this week and, and I, it came rushing back to me. The words from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Look around me. I can see my life before me. Running rings around the way it used to be. I'm older now. I have more than I wanted, but I wish that I had started long before I did. And there's so much time to make up. Everywhere you turn, time we have wasted on the way. So much water underneath the bridge. And maybe you're here today and you wasted your life. You wasted a lot of time. You're in a stage where you need to come back to God. I, I, I close with this, a song that I love, current from Jeremy Camp, who's been here twice for concerts. He says, I've been thinking about time and where does it go? How can I stop my life from passing me by? I don't know. I've been thinking about family and how it's going so fast. Well, I wake up one morning just wishing that I could go back. I've been thinking maybe I can make a change and let you change me. So that with all my heart, this is my prayer, singing, oh Lord, keep me in the moment. Help me to live with my eyes wide open because I don't want to miss what you have for me. Show me what matters. 
throw away what I'm chasing after because I don't want to miss what you have for me. Keep me in the moment. And when I wake up in the morning, Lord, search my heart. Don't let me stray. I just want to stay where you are. All I got is one shot, one try, one go around. Nothing is ever wasted when it's put in your hands. Lord, keep me in the moment. Now, this is your moment. Your moment. Your moment to say yes to God. Your moment to surrender fully to God. Your moment to say, God, sanctify me, set me apart. Fill me with your grace. Fill me with your love. Your moment. Father God, I thank you for this time we've had together. I thank you that you have set forth a race for all of us. Some are on the race running wide open, not looking back. Others have got about a block into the race and are stopping taking selfies. Others are just standing around going, I don't know what to do with my life. Lord God, I pray that in this moment that we would step from the porch and open the door of our heart and invite you to come in. And Lord God, as we live our life in your house, may we occupy it in a way that brings you glory. Keep us from sin. Keep us from sin for your glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.